Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Oh, what a pleasure seeing you all. Okay. So I want to start with a little story, as, right, of course. Okay, so a little story about um, this teacher who um, uh, was teaching a large group of students, some 300 students, and the time of the exam came on the day of the exam. She comes to class and she tells the students, I know it's an important day for you, but let me tell you, you have exactly one hour to complete my exam today. If you do not complete it within an hour, you'll fail. Fine, the students rush to uh, complete the exam. After an hour, everyone completes the exam except for? Moishi. Moishi is still writing and writing and writing. After 20 minutes, half an hour, he's still writing. After an hour, altogether two hours, he finally completes the exam. He goes to the professor. And he says, here's my exam. The professor said, I'm not taking it. I told you, it's only going to be a one-hour exam. One minute later, that's it. You failed. So the Moishi tells the teacher, do you know who I am? And the professor says, frankly, there were hundreds of students. I don't know who you are. Moishi says, great. He takes his exam, sticks it in a pile of exams, says, goodbye, professor. <laughs> Tonight, tonight I want to speak about this question of do you know who I am? Not just about the soul, but about what the soul really is so that we can know who we truly are. And uh, to answer this question, of course, I won't give you anything from my imagination. It's not worth exploring, but I will give you some references and together we can study them. Some references, of course, from Jewish text, uh, mainly from Kabbalists, as you'll notice the mystics of Tzfat and the mystics of uh, the Talmud, including the foremost mystic, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar, the foremost work of Kabbalah. And uh, we'll study these texts to answer this uh, very complex question. Um, I do, as I always say, I do want this to be much more of a conversation, much more of a learning experience than just a lecture. You know, the word for learning in Hebrew is the same word as for teaching in Hebrew, because when you teach, you ought to learn. And when you learn, you ought to teach. So this should be a, a two-way street. And therefore, if you have any questions, comments, ideas, suggestions, please don't hesitate to suggest them, okay? All right. So going to the very first question, what is the soul? Uh, I want to, uh, before we explore the text themselves, I just want to share with you yet another story, a cute story about uh, one of the great Hasidic masters that, who was nicknamed the Tzemach Tzedek, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, 
um, who was raised by his grandfather. He was orphaned at a young age, and he was raised by his grandfather, Rabbi Shneur Zaman of Liadi, the author of one of the great Hasidic philosophical books, the Tanya. And his grandfather, Rabbi Shneur Zaman Liadi, had his grandson as a child on his lap one day. And um, he says, I'm going to play with him this game. So he asks his grandchild, where is Saba? Where is Zaidi? Where is Grandpa? And the young child sitting on the lap of his grandfather says, here, points to the heart of uh, Grandpa. Rabbi Shnel Zaman of Liadi says, no, that's not Saba. That's Saba's heart. It's not Saba. All right, so where is Saba? And the grandchild points to his head. Grandpa again says, it's not Saba. It's the head of Saba, but it's not Saba. So where is Saba? And the child, the future Hasidic rabbi, thinks for a little bit. And then uh, he leaves his lap. And then from the corner of the room, he shouts, Saba! The Saba says, yes. And the grandchild says, you see, that's Saba. That's Saba. When I called your name, that's uh, the Saba that uh, you are. Now, what is a human being? A human being is much more, of course, than the flesh and the blood and the anatomy that we have. A human being is so much more than that. It's not just the head. It's not just the heart. But it's something deeper that relates to our very essence, that when someone calls us, that essence is triggered. And we say, this is who we are. Yes, you want me? Here is me. But what is that me? If it's not the body, if it's not the head, if it's not the heart, what is it? And for that, I'd like to start with a text here directly from the Zohar, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who, we, as we mentioned, was the author of the Zohar. He lived some 2,000 years ago in Israel. He had to hide uh, from the Romans in a cave, as many of you may know, for 12 years, and then for an additional year, altogether for 13 years. And apparently there, while in the cave, while in his hiding place, he wrote this masterful work called the Zohar, which speaks really of uh, the heavenly spheres, it's known also as the foremost book of Kabbalah. So speaking about that me, and what is that me, this is what he says. Quoting a verse from Job. Uh, does anyone want to read? Please. I shouldn't be, like I said, I shouldn't be the only one reading tonight. Yes. Right, very good. The body is only the cover. It's only Purim is coming up. It's only the dress up, the disguise. It disguises the soul, that which is really inside. What is that soul? We still have uh, not answered the question. We've answered what the soul is not. But what is the soul? The soul is probably that which gives us instincts, intuitions, feelings. It's certainly something that is not physical, tangible, material. It's something that exists that we can sense all the time, but yet does not have an external, again, physical expression. That is what the soul is. There's another great Hasidic anecdote about Reb Zusha, one of the uh, great students of uh, the Maggid of Mezrich of some 250 years ago. Reb Zusha is known for many of his stories. I don't know if you've heard the name, Zusha. The most famous Zusha story is when they found him crying one day on the floor, and they asked Zusha, what's wrong? And Zusha said, 
I'm crying because after I die, it's the most famous story of Bat uh, Reb Zusha, after I die, and I go up to the heavens, uh, God is not going to ask me, why weren't you like Abraham? Why weren't you like Isaac? Why weren't you like Moses? God will ask me, why wasn't I Zusha? That's right, like Zusha. I have to be myself. That's the most famous story of Zusha. But in that same, in that same vein, in the same context, Zusha once stood up from his studies. This is in the hall of studies. Everyone was studying. Imagine, in a packed room, everyone was studying. All of a sudden, Zusha stands up. He lights a candle, and he starts searching the room. They ask Zusha, what are you doing? We're in the middle of studying. Zusha says, I'm looking for Zusha. You're looking for Zusha here? This, you, you are Zusha. Now he says, I'm looking for Zusha. What Zusha are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for the Zusha that you will all be looking for after I die, when my body will lie. You won't say that my body is Zusha. You'll say that Zusha was this person, that person. Zusha's love continues. Where is that Zusha? That's who I'm looking for. If those studies that we are currently learning, he tells his peers, can't influence the person that I ought to be, the Zusha that I ought to be, not this body, but the persona I ought to be, then I shouldn't be studying. I should rather be looking for this Zusha. That's the anecdote about Zusha. So what is that Zusha from... Uh, a, a, different, a different perspective, there's a great book, I don't know if you're into these books or not, some of you may be, but there's a book called The View From Above. It's a book about uh, a person who actually had a terrible accident, and she had what's called an NDE, a near-death experience, where uh, she describes how she died, yet she was still very much alive, and she was hovering upon a body, observing all sorts of things. This is an excerpt from this book, and I think this will also give us a glimpse into who we are if we were to leave that flesh and blood, which is only a disguise, as we mentioned before. Does anyone want to read this next reference? It's a, it's a nice description. Yes, go for it. Chaim Bermodchaya Koyen. That's how I call him, affectionately. That's how I call Alan. Let's go. Yes. Suddenly, I felt a violent blow strike my head. I fell flat on the ground in front of the woman. A heavy 18-foot wooden beam, plunging from the scaffold atop the five-story structure, hit me and sailed into the street as if thrown by a catapult. All at once, I felt I was outside my body, floating upward about 12 to 15 feet above the sidewalk, watching the scene below. I did not know how I left my body or how I got up there. Everything happened so suddenly that I was caught completely by surprise. I saw the large woman bending over my body, trying to detect the sign of life in my motionless form. Then she started screaming for help. This is my body, I thought, but I'm not inside it. I'm looking at it from above. How is this possible? With what eyes am I seeing this and where are my ears? How could I be hearing all this noise in the street? I was baffled. Obviously I existed. I was real. I was conscious but not inside my frame. I always thought that I and my body were identical. I did not know I was being that was more than just a physical body. Right, and we often go through life saying to ourselves, well, um, we are a body. I mean, it's a big philosophical question. Who, what is the person, right? You have Rene Descartes that says, I think, therefore I am. We are our thoughts. You have the health. Uh, gurus out there who say that we are what we eat. 
Uh, I think Judaism says we are, come on, what we do, thank you. We are what we do. Therefore, most of the Torah is based on actions uh, because we are what we do. That really is what defines us. But who are we? Are we our bodies? Some people say yes. Now, obviously, based on these references thus far and based, I think, on personal experience, we can say that we're not. We're not just our body. We're something so much more. And I would say that um, the, the best indication to who we truly are, what our essence is comprised of, is a verse from Genesis that speaks of the breath of God. Who are we? The breath of God. The best definition of the human being is not even the image of God, Tselem Elohim in the words of uh, Genesis, but it's more than that. It's the breath of God. In each of us, there is a breath of God. There's something very divine. Let's read this, this verse, and then I want to elaborate on this a little bit and speak uh, again about this composition of the soul. Anyone? Genesis 2, 7. And now the Lord formed the human of soil from the earth and breathed it into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Right, so God formed the body of man, of Adam and Eve. By the way, they were created together. According to the Midrash, they were gl created glued to each other. Many think first Adam came and then Eve. No, Adam and Eve created, were created together, glued together. He created the form of the bodies. And then he came and he, like it says here, God came and he breathed his breath into the nostrils of man and thereby giving him life. That breath was the soul, is the soul. And that is the soul that really gives us life. And when it leaves the body, the form of the body that we each have, there is no life anymore in that body. That is why also in Hebrew the word for soul is called neshama, right? Neshama. Neshama is the same exact word as the word for breath in Hebrew, neshima. Because the neshama, the soul, is the breath of God. So friends, what we've deducted thus far is that the soul is a part of God. Each one of us, believe it or not, is a part of God. We are divine. That's who we truly are. And that, that divine being that we are always yearns upwards, always yearns for more. That also explains why sometimes we either wake up in the morning or after a tragedy happens, something, something clicks in our mind and we say, gosh, I'm, I'm looking for meaning. I'm looking for something greater. Where does it come from? It comes from that divine being that knows that it does not belong to this world, that knows that it should be much higher than this world, and therefore it yearns very high, it aspires the highest. And yet sometimes we don't, we don't relate to it. Oh, you woke up in the morning inspired, now let's go back to work. We have bills to pay, we have a calendar to follow, and we have meetings to meet. What happened to the yearning? We push it aside. But I think that's why also Judaism so brilliantly creates moments like prayer, like festivals, Purim is coming up again, in order to allow for that soul to, uh, to simply be, to, I would say, to translate its highest, highest aspirations in this world. This is also why Proverbs calls the soul the candle of God. Candle of God is the soul of man. If you look at a candle closely, 
you'll realize, as the commentaries point out, that it's always flickering upwards. The flame of the candle is always flickering upwards, just like the soul. It doesn't want what the body wants. It wants divinity. It wants spirituality. It wants those uh, metaphysical dreams. Yet the body desires uh, something else. And then the big question becomes, how can the soul find expression even within the body? But I would say that, that in my eyes at least, and please disagree with me if you, if you think I'm wrong, that in my eyes explains why you have what I call uh, Sandy Koffex moments or, or uh, Daniel Pearl moments, where uh, no matter what you try to do, there's a moment in which the soul erupts. Daniel Pearl, a heroic man, was uh, not a classic Jew. He married out of the faith. He did not call himself Jewish. He called himself multiple times a universalist. Um, yet when that evil man was about to behead him in 2002, we just celebrated 15 years since his passing or commemorated 15 years since his passing. What did he say? Do you remember that moment? I am a Jew. My father is a Jew. My mother is a Jew. And my grandfather, Chaim Pearl, has a street named after him in the city of Bnei Brak, Israel. What led him to speak like that all of a sudden? The soul. The soul that aspires to return to its root, to, to God himself. I really believe that that's, that's where it comes from. I'll share with you a personal story. About a few months ago, I received a call from Dr. Shiri Etzioni, who some of you may know. But um, she called me from the hospice uh, at Mayo, the Sherman House, and said, there's a Jew here who wants to speak to a rabbi before he dies. Can you come? I said, sure. I went to see him. His name is Sherwin Bash. As soon as I walk inside his room, he tells me, Rabbi, you should know that I'm 87 years old, and I haven't seen a rabbi since my bar mitzvah. I said, whoa, in America you have rabbis here as numerous as flies. So, how come? What, you didn't even bump into a rabbi in the street at the supermarket? He said, no, I purposely avoided you guys. So I said, fine. So my question is different. If you avoided us, what makes you call for a rabbi just before you die? Why now? You avoided us for so long. Why now? And he responded, I don't know, rabbi, but something inside me told me to call you. There was no doubt in my mind that that something was the soul, that part of God, the candle of God, that was yearning for more. Maybe it was squashed for so many years. Yet it erupts in moments of, uh, of crisis. And I've noticed this time and time again as a rabbi. I'm sure you've noticed this. Noticed it with myself too. But you have moments in which the candle tells you, hey, it's time to ignite your, yourself, your flame. It's time to climb upwards. And the question is really whether we can utilize those moments to climb, to go even higher, to become divine, to become that which we really are. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But that is the composition of the soul at its uh, very essence, at its uh, very innermost chambers. Now I want to go with you to the journey of the soul. Now that we've defined the soul, and again, if there's any questions, ideas, comments, please Please share them with me. But 
If there aren't, then I, I'd like to go with you over the journey of the soul. So the soul, as we said, came from the breath of God. The breath of God now placed that soul in the body. But before the breath of God itself had its own journey, according again to the text, to the Talmud, to the Kabbalist. And before it comes down on earth, in fact, it refuses, it, it shouts to the angels, to God himself, I don't want to come out, come down. This is not the place for me. You can imagine, it's understandable also. If the soul is a part of God, the soul is spiritual, why should it come to a physical place? It, would, it will feel here like, like as if it is in a cage. You know the story of uh, the camel, the baby camel? There was once a baby camel here in the Phoenix Zoo uh, that uh, went to his mother and said, Mother, why do we have such long eyelashes? The mother says, well, that's because, you know, we live in the desert. There are many dust storms in the desert. So God created for us with long eyelashes to protect our eyes. Great. Why do we have such large toes? That's because we walk distances and distances in the desert. So God protected our feet. He says, why do we have such uh, humps in our, on our backs? Oh, that's to store food because there will be days in which we won't eat. So the baby camel says to its mother, if we have so many gifts, then what are we doing in the Phoenix Zoo? <laughs> why here? Now, that's more or less how the soul feels. God tells the soul to come down. The soul says, why? I'm going to be in the Phoenix Zoo all life long. Why should I want that? The soul is limitless. Why, why come down? Let's speak about the struggle of the soul, the descent of the soul to this world, in the words, again, of our sources, and then we can elaborate on this a little bit. The descent to this world. You're so quiet tonight. No questions? Okay, fine. Let's go to the uh, bottom text. Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov is the founder of a Hasidic movement um, in the 1600s. This is what he writes about the soul's descent. Anyone, please, go for it. The soul's origin is eternal and pristine place. Afterwards, the soul descends through the progression of the world. You have created it, you have formed it, you have created it. Right. Okay, by the way, this quote, you have created it, you have formed it, you have breathed it into me, is straight from the prayer. Uh, in the morning prayers, in the morning blessings, we, we, we have this blessing called Elohai Neshama, which I'm sure many are familiar with. And there we speak about the soul. It's interesting because, you know, we go to sleep in the Jewish Siddur. We go to sleep with the soul, with speaking about the soul. And we wake up with speaking about the soul. One of the very last phrases that uh, appears in the prayer that we say before going to sleep, or as we go to sleep, the Shema prayer, is Be'adcha Afkid Ruchi. In your hands, God, I will place my spirit, my soul. And then when we wake up in the morning, we thank God for returning our soul, Modani, right, in the Modani. And then we say the Elohai Neshama, speaking about the soul to remind us again who we truly are before we attack the day in front of us. But uh, that's, that's the way the Jewish day is built. But again, the soul comes down, and it comes down for a very specific mission. What's interesting here, based on this text, is that I don't mean to be too mystical here. If I do get too, too esoteric, please slap me, and I'll come right back to this world. But um, 
What's interesting here, according to the Baal Shem Tov, and he's not the only one to speak about this, again, mystically, is that when the soul comes down, not the entire soul comes down. A part of our soul forever remains above. That part of the soul remains above serves as the GPS for the soul below. It sends signals to the soul. You're doing something wrong, you're doing something right. When we speak in English, it's called the gut feeling, right? When you speak of the gut feeling, I would call it the soul feeling. But not the soul that is below. The soul that is above feels something and it sends a signal to the soul below and then, says, oh, that's right, I shouldn't be doing this. And many of us experience that. Now, that is why also, think about this, the, congra- the, the expression for, for congratulations in Hebrew is what? When someone has a son, gets married, what? Mazel tov, that's right. What does mazel tov mean? Good luck. It's usually translated as good luck, but that's not what it means. Mazel comes from the word nozel in Hebrew, which means dripping. When you say mazel tov, you're saying good dripping. What does that mean? That you should have a flood and your uh, roof, your ceiling should drip? What does that mean? It means that your mazel should be so, your, uh, your fortune should be, should be so good, or your, your situation so, should be so good, that there's a direct flow between your upper soul and your lower soul. That the GPS has fine reception. That it uh, has a Verizon signal, not a T-Mobile. No, okay, fine. <laughs> a Verizon signal or a Sprint or T-Mobile, not a who knows what. <laughs> but that type of signal, there's a good dripping. And when we are connected to that upper soul, then our intuition and even our, our feelings about things, our our direction in life becomes clearer. I'm sure all of you know what I'm speaking about, but, but I think the more in tune a person is with himself, with his purpose, with that which he ought to be in this world, the greater the alignment between the lower soul and the upper soul, the greater the muzzle, the stripping, and therefore the more enhanced the, the work of the person in this world, or the purpose, the fulfillment of the purpose of the person in this world. I'll share with you yet another story, but I think that's, by the way, the definition of holiness. Holiness is someone who has perfect dripping, perfect muzzle. Uh, the person is so holy that he's completely in tune with his soul, that what he feels is really what the soul feels. What he says is what the soul, and therefore what God says. Righteous people are people who are who live in this, this sphere where they are led by their souls in a complete and wholesome way. Uh, the story that comes to mind that I'd like to share with you is the story of uh, Rabbi Schneerson, the late Lubavitcher Rebbe, who passed away some, what, 25 years ago, maybe a little less, nine, a little more, 1994. It's a little more, but uh, Rabbi Schneerson, as many of you I'm sure have heard about, was really one of the great uh, luminaries of, of this generation. Uh, he's the head of the Chabad movement. But Rabbi Schneerson once had a very interesting visit by uh, the, the then general of the Israeli army, the Ramatkal of the, the Israeli army, Ariel Sharon, who then became the prime minister, as we all know. Ariel Sharon designed his visit to the Rebbe who lived in New York so that this would be the last meeting he had here in, uh, in America during his trip to America, and then he would catch a plane back to Israel from JFK. He went to visit the Rebbe, and the Rebbe is speaking to him, and speaking to him, and speaking to him, and Ariel Sharon is looking at his watch, and the Rebbe says, what's wrong? 
And Ariel Sharon says, thank you for speaking to me for so long, but I have a flight to catch. Rabbi Schneerson says, you'll catch the next one. What's the big deal? You don't have to catch this flight. Fine. They speak and speak. He misses his flight. The flight that Ariel Sharon missed, this is documented, was a flight that was hijacked by Algerian terrorists in 1977, I believe. Algerian terrorists. If Ariel Sharon had been on this flight, there's no need to tell you what type of torture he would have endured. Maybe murder. On his next visit to the Rebbe, Ariel Sharon says, Rabbi Schneerson, thank you very much for saving my life, but I also have a complaint to file. What's the complaint? The complaint is that if you knew that my plane was going to be hijacked, why don't you save the entire plane? You should have saved all of the passengers. And Rabbi Schneerson said, do you really think I knew? When I told you to stay, those were the words that God placed in my mouth. I think a man like that, who, who is, who was so holy, is a man that was so in tune with his upper muzzle, his upper dripping, that what he said was really what, what the GPS said, what God said. And what he felt was what God felt. A person like that has, has a complete alignment between that upper soul and the lower soul. And therefore, yeah, the Baal Shem Tov speaks about the upper soul, Right or the connect to the level of the soul the way it is below with the source of the soul above. That's what he's speaking about. Yet there is still a part of the soul that descends here and is forced to descend here. Part of the soul that doesn't want to descend here like we explained, yet it is, it is forced to descend here. Why? So as the Baal Shem Tov also said, to transform this lowest realm into a dwelling place of God. To make this world a good place, a holy place. To, how does, it, uh, how does Michael Jackson say it in uh, We Are the World? Come on, how do the words go? <laughs> but something like that, same message, he stole it from here. Hmm? Thank you, to make a better place, yeah, for you and me. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. But uh, this is why we are sent here. Now, the real why, by the way, is not explained. Uh, Kabbalah speaks about this too, a lot, but I'm not going to bore you with those discussions. Why did God want us to come down and make this world a better place? So some say it's for the sake of the souls themselves, so that they can ascend even higher. Their parts of God can reach higher heights. Fine. Some say it's because if God were to give us those higher heights for free, it would be like receiving a gift for free. When you receive the gift for free, you feel embarrassed. Now, Because that heavenly space is, a, is an eternal place, so you would be embarrassed forever. But the real why, I don't think, is really explained. You have all sorts of answers. But in any case, it's sent here to this world. Now, Rabbi Yoshua Levi Horowitz, who was the, the, one of the great rabbis of Prague, he, um, by the way, uh, does, is anyone called a Horowitz here? Horowitz? Is, does anyone have the last name Gurevich or Gorowitz? It's the same name. Oh, Gorowitz? It's, it's usually the same name. Um, because the Russians say the H-G, G, right? Horowitz. So most Horowitzes are related, and most Gorowitzes are related to Rabbi Yeshua Levi Horowitz. Are you? Oh, okay, fine. 
But it's interesting, Rabbi Shua Levi Horowitz lived in the 1500s in Prague. He was the darshan of the city, which was the lecturer of the city, together with uh, Rabbi Yehuda Leib Lau, Rabbi Maharal of Prague. Um, and what's interesting about the Horowitzes, this is a side note, uh, but I know some Horowitzes are directly are direct descendants of this man. He wrote in his will that he's asking all of his descendants not to eat turkey. No thanksgiving for them. Turkey, please don't eat. And until this day, many of his descendants keep that. Keep that rule. Isn't it interesting? Why? I don't know. I'm thinking maybe because during his days, there was no shochet for turkeys. I don't know. Sorry? So it wouldn't have been kosher, right. Anyway, that's a really a side note. But Rabbi Shah Levi Horowitz was also a Kabbalist. And this is what he says. This is what he says about the journey of the soul. He goes even deeper. Um, does anyone want to read this? Anyone? Yes, please. The soul was placed into man and was sent, into, was sent to this world, the world of physical action, to work and to guard it, referring to the study of Torah and fulfillment of mitzvot. Right. In this world, the soul is like a stranger in a strange land. This can be compared to a king who sends an envoy from his trusted personal staff to a foreign land and commands him to engage in a particular task. The king urges him, be very cautious and rigorous with the work of your mission. Similarly, God, the king of kings, takes the soul of its heavenly, of its heavenly chamber where the divine presence is felt and sends it to this world, placing it into a body. God gives man divine presence is felt and sent it to this world, uh, placing it to a body. God gives man commandment. Mm -hmm. His mission being the fulfillment of Torah and spoke. As long as man is in this foreign land, he should not take his mind off his mission, even for a second. Right. Uh, I think the parable is beautiful, but basically we are sent here to guard it and to work it. But there are many distractions. So one should not take his mind off even for one second from his mission which reminds me of a different anecdote about Shimon Peres. Shimon Peres used to tell this story all the time. But in 1934, he was forced to leave his grandfather behind in Poland, and his family migrated to Palestine, what was known as Palestine then. Just before he left, his grandfather called him and said to him, Shimon, mein Kind, bleib te yid. Please, my child, remain a Jew. You'll have many distractions, but remain a Jew. It's that whisper of the soul that tells us again, time and time again, don't be distracted, even for one second, Rabbi Yeshua Levi Horowitz. But the soul is really that which should guide us. Now, it's helped by that upper soul like we spoke about, but that is its main mission to be directed to fulfill God's commandments in this world. Now, there's a beautiful, we don't have to read it or even sing it, but there's a beautiful Hasidic song that speaks of this uh, reluctance of the soul to come down in this world. Uh, and then the angel uh, says, please come down. I can't really force. You can't force someone. We're against forcing in Judaism uh, for any reason. But, um, in fact, there is no word for forcing in Hebrew. You know that? In modern Hebrew, there's the word kafa, but it's not a biblical word. We don't believe in forcing so much. Yes? So does the soul age with the body? Ah. I mean, when the soul appears to a baby and, and, and a child, and then, you know, I mean, how does that work? That's an excellent question. Um, does the soul age? 
The simple answer is no. Simple answer is no. But uh, the body ages. And therefore, through age sometimes, the soul can find more, exp more expression. Um, so the soul doesn't age, but the soul creates for itself space as the body ages so that it can find for itself more expression. Of course, that's if we're open to the soul. We'll speak about this marriage. It's interesting just now. It's an interesting marriage between the body and the soul and how they work together. Fine? Y yes? So, Rabbi, uh, what we just read, can we take from it? Similarly, God, King of Kings, takes the soul, places it into a body. Is there then a single soul? Because it's not plural, placing souls into bodies. So, seemingly, we take from this that there is just one soul ah. that we, we may all share. Is, is this a fair reading of this? Uh, yeah, very good. I mean, if you're talking about that collective soul that we all have, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, th think about this this way, the, the same way with the same logic that we, we had until now. And that is that if we're all a part of God, God is one. So at the end of the day, we're all one. We're all part of the same source, which is God. So we're really all one. That's why, by the way, it, it's, it's fascinating, but um, it's not the topic for tonight, but nonetheless, um, the Tanya, which is again one of the great Hasidic philosoph philosophical works, speaks about uh, the commandment of loving your fellow like yourself. And it says that if a person loves the body of the other, that love can't exist. Why? Bodies are different, bodies change, and therefore that love might change. But if the body loves the soul of the other, I mean, sorry, if a person loves the soul of the other, then that's, that love can exist because the soul doesn't change, doesn't even age, doesn't change. The soul is eternal, and therefore the love will be eternal. Real love is soul to soul. It's not when I love a person's nose, or a person's uh, eyes, or a person's uh, gestures. It's when I love the soul, that which is much more than what we see, that which we hear that which we feel, that we, which we perceive, if that's what we love, then uh, nothing can stop the love because it's a soul-to-soul -soul love. It's like the story, and excuse all my stories, but there's a beautiful story about an Israeli soldier who was sent to war shortly after his marriage, and he was severely injured up, up in the north in Lebanon. And uh, when he woke up from his injuries in the hospital of uh, Rambam in Haifa, the first thing he did is that he wrote a letter to his wife saying, I give you full permission to divorce me. Why? Because look at me. I've changed. My face is deformed. My leg is missing. That's not the person who you tended to, to marry, so, so you have permission to divorce me. Upon receiving that letter, his wife ran to the hospital and said, my dear husband, do you think I married you for your face? Do you think I married you for your leg? I married you for you. And as, evidence, as evident in this letter that you just wrote, that you still exist. So I'll stay married to you forever. But that's the soul-to-soul -soul love. Again, it's that which is much more than that. And that's the only love, really, that can endure. Uh, yes? Um, in Derek Hashem and in other places, they, they say that animals and going and have one soul and Jews can have, have, have multiple souls. Is that not right? Animals, yes. The, the, well, animals have different types of souls. They still have souls. Uh, their souls are called spirits more than souls. Uh, but again, it's something that's divine that makes them live, makes their body move, bodies move. 
Uh, Jews and non-Jews, it's, it's, that's a good question. It's a question that's spoken about. But the Tanya itself, the, the book of the Tanya that we just mentioned, uh, concludes, uh, does not have a conclusion, but concludes more or less, you can imply through these words that it's more or less the same soul. More or less the same soul. Yes? Oh, well, if it's for evil, it's not a soulful mission. Because the soul is a part of God, God, who's the ultimate source of goodness, if I am creating evil, then it's not, it does not come from the soul. It comes from the desire of the body. So evil people don't have a soul? Evil people, well, first, let's define evil. You know, evil people, what does that mean? We, we jump to categorize people as evil. They are evil people. Adolf Hitler was completely evil. Terrorists are evil, e evil. but uh, we do evil acts. That doesn't necessarily make us evil. If we are evil like Hitler's, the Hitler's of the world, then yes, their souls, they did have a soul. I'm sure that Hitler as a baby had a soul, but they stained it, contaminated it so much that it's not a soul anymore. Good point. Yeah. Okay, so, so um, speaking about the soul, that, that somehow... Uh, comes down to this world when the angel convinces the soul to come, to come down. As I said, there's no word for forcing in Hebrew. It doesn't force it, even though it almost needs to force it because the soul doesn't want to come down to the Phoenix Zoo, like we said. But, um, or as, you know, metaphorically, of course. But um, the soul is shown by the angel, people learning. Maybe the soul's watching us right now. The soul is shown people doing good things according to the Talmud of 2,000 years ago. And then the soul makes a deal with the angel. If you promise me that I'll be like these people, like you, tonight, the soul is saying this, then fine, I agree to come down. The angel makes an oath, and the soul, in return, makes an oath too. I'll be righteous. You'll make sure that I'm righteous, but I'll be righteous. And that's how the soul eventually is convinced to come down to this world. Uh, and that's the oath that we speak about. Now, it comes down. So we spoke about the essence of the soul, that it's a divine being. And we spoke about the descent of the soul. Some of it remains there. Some of it comes down here. The part that comes down here is convinced by this promise of the angel. Once it comes down here, it has to marry a body to live here. But it's a very complex marriage between the body and the soul. Why? Because they each desire two separate things. The body wants bodily desires, and the soul wants soulful desires. The body wants to eat. The body wants to sleep. The body wants to indulge itself. The soul doesn't want, the soul wants to do good. The soul wants to pray. The soul wants to meditate. The soul wants to do yoga, Bikram, Ashtanga, you name it. It wants to do that. But that's what the soul wants. The body doesn't necessarily want that. So there's a very interesting marriage. And the best description, I think, that, that the Talmud has about this marriage is through this beautiful parable that uh, expressed itself in an, an interesting exchange between Antoninus Pius, who was the Roman emperor of 100 BCE, and Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. They were close friends. Uh, they were very close friends. Do you know why? They were close friends from birth. It's an interesting story between the Roman emperor and the Jewish giant. But when the Romans... 
when Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was born, year about 100 BCE, the Romans had decreed that Jews are not allowed to circumcise their children. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, Rabbi Yehuda, came from a family that was close to Romans. It was even close to the emperor. So the mother of Rabbi Yehuda went to the emperor and said, look, I need to circumcise my son. But I know that Roman soldiers, you have Roman soldiers coming to every Jewish home eight days after the birth of a boy to examine the child. And they'll examine my child and they'll see that he's circumcised. But we're friends. Let's strike a deal. I'll circumcise my child on the eighth day. And immediately after the circumcision, we'll exchange babies. You just had a baby too. I'll have your baby. You'll have my baby until the Roman soldiers come. They'll come and examine my baby. They'll see that he's not circumcised. And then we can re-exchange our babies. That's what they did. That baby that was exchanged with Rabbi, Rabbi Yudha Nasi became the Roman emperor, Antoninus Pius. So they had, very, they had a very close friendship. And they had beautiful uh, exchanges, very intellectual exchanges uh, throughout their lives. This is one of them about this marriage between the body and the soul. Does anyone want to read the bottom reference here? Body and soul. Please. Okay. The blind man consented and both ate the fruit. After some days, the Lord of the garden came and asked the watchman concerning the fruit. Then the lame man said, As I have no legs, I cannot go to take it. And the blind man said, I cannot even see it. What did the Lord of the garden, what did the Lord of the garden do? He made the blind man carry the lame and let it pass judgment on both on them both. So God will replace the souls in their bodies and will punish both together for their Right. But it also speaks of this cooperation that, is, uh, that, that needs to happen between the body and the soul. You see, the body is like uh, the, blind, the blind person in this parable, and the soul is like the lame. The soul can't do good without a body. So it needs to be carried by the body. You can't, do, you can't give charity if you don't have a hand, if you don't have, uh, you know, again, a body to do so. You can't run to help someone or to the synagogue and pray if you don't have legs. You can't pray if you don't have a mouth. You need the body for the soul to function. That's the marriage that needs to happen. And therefore, I think that even though there are two separate entities, the body and the soul are, are completely different and they desire different things, they ought to work together in order for the soul to actualize itself. Without the body, the soul can't actualize itself. And that's why Judaism is not a religion that isolates itself or asks its members to isolate itself and meditate on mountains for days and become monks and not speak. No. We are asked to engage in the world, to engage with our bodies in the world. The only trick is that the body should be a conduit for the soul and not the opposite way. Right? Yes, Marsha. Go ahead. 
So good question. Um, or in other words, do we believe in reincarnation? <laughs> so next week, I want to speak about the afterlife. This week, I want to focus in this, on this world. And next, next week, I'll speak about the afterlife and about reincarnation. But to answer your question on one foot, um, yes, we do believe in reincarnation. Souls that have not actualized themselves, where the body was not a conduit for the soul, but rather the other way around, right? The soul was a conduit for the body, then um, have to somehow come back and, and fix that. How does the entire soul come back? The entire soul that was here below come back? Only a part of it? We'll speak about that next week. But again, the big idea is that the body should be a conduit. The body is a good thing. That's why I think also Judaism doesn't have, if you think about this, we don't have cardinal sins, right? Christians have seven cardinal sins. Can you name them? What? Lust? What? Lust? <laughs> I know, but I can name it. Lust, greed, envy. Okay, now. <laughs> I'm going to leave some for next week, too. <laughs> some reincarnation this week, some this. All right, but... Uh, why don't we have cardinal sins? Aren't there things that we can say or categorize as negative? Don't touch them? No, they aren't. Because even greed can be a good thing. If I'm greedy of a spiritual person, what's wrong with that? It will make me more spiritual. If I'm envy of a scholar, it will make me more wise. Kinat sofrim tarbe the Talmud says, that the jealousy of scribes increases wisdom in the world. So what's wrong with that? So there's nothing that is negative. The only question is who's in control. Is it the body or the soul? But the soul needs the body. And therefore, the body cannot be categorized as negative. No part of the body can be categorized as negative. It's simply a question of channeling it in the right direction. Yes, Randy. So when someone is nearing death, yes. um, often the, the phrase is used, the person has a foot in Mm. You know, yes. And, and after it. So yes. What does the soul go in and out at that? What happens to the soul when a person is in that stage? Right. So uh, that near-death experience that we mentioned at the very beginning is maybe uh, maybe answers your question a little bit, and we'll speak about the afterlife next week too. But you're right. What happens? Some people, uh, and the, I've heard this as said many times that some people see the movie of their lives before they die. If you, I don't know if you've heard that expression. Uh, but that, the, the soul is certainly in a place that is higher than this world. And from there it sees the body, from there it sees the world, from there it sees the movie of its life. What's interesting is that after it leaves the body, it still sees the movie of its life. And we'll speak about the afterlife next week. Yes? Uh, so this is a pre-life Yes. Mm -hmm. remember, um, but I think you said something about all of the souls were created 200 years before ah. the... The world. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, the, the order of God's creation is that the souls came first. And that's a good point because it came, uh, the souls came first. God created the, the, his creation based on what he prioritizes. He prioritizes the souls, 
Therefore, they came first. Then he created the world. The Torah also was created before the world. Uh, angels were created before the world. The Talmud has a whole list of things that were created before the world. But uh, again, maybe to also teach us exactly what we're saying, and it's very much connected, that the soul has that power to be in control over the body. It was created before it. It was created before the world. And therefore, it can, it can really navigate that body and, and be the captain of that ship. But not always do we have the courage, the resilience, the power to do so. Uh, but the goal of man, again, should have uh, his, uh, sh- should be that his soul controls the body. Now, it does not squash it, right? It's no negative traits. It doesn't squash it. But we channel it in the right direction. Uh, Rabbi Shnol Zaman of Liadi uh, has a beautiful parable. Again, Torah or Rabbi Shnol Zaman of Liadi lived also some 250 years ago. He was the author of the Tanya that we mentioned. Uh, let's, who wants to read this third reference from the top of the page? Anyone? In order to lift something properly, one needs to place the grip below the entire object. We see this clearly with a lever, which is placed totally under the object one wishes to lift. So too the material that God used to create man was of the lowest form so that man could successfully lift it back to its source. Right. So the, the, again, the body is there to enable the soul to lift itself, to use the same parable that we used before, the body is there to enable the soul to ignite its flame and rise upwards, like a lever. Yes? Are all souls equal? Are all souls at their very essence? Yes. Are all souls equal? That was the question. Yes, because we all come from God. We're all a part of God. That's right. There's no selection process going on. That's correct. Now, where we differ, where souls differ, is in their mission in their purpose in life. And we're getting to that just now. But the very essence of the soul is the same by everyone. Good, good question. Then, yes? Then what happens to that soul when incredible evil develops? What happens? Develops from within or from without? Within. That soul feels encaged, like that baby camel and even worse. The soul feels as if it's trapped. And, but uh, lest we think that the soul is extinguished, no. The soul can never be extinguished. The soul will always yearn. Sometimes it will take years. Sometimes it will take generations for it to finally erupt. But it will always be there, and it will feel very trapped. I'll tell you the story of Roku Smish. One of the most stirring stories I've ever read, Rokus Mish was the personal bodyguard of Adolf Hitler, speaking about evil men. And um, he married in 1942. Only 1932, in the middle of the war, in the middle of the Holocaust, who does he marry? A Jew by the name of Gerda. Imagine the traitor. Look it up. Google the name, Rokus Mish. Now, Rokus Mish, R-O-C-H-U-S, Mish, M-I-S-C-H. Now, he stays married to her, to this Gerda, for how long? For 50 years. 50 years until her death in 1990, for 55 years, 1997. In 1997, just before she dies, she calls her daughter and she says, I want you to know you're Jewish. This daughter did not know what to do with herself, but she says, oh, now I know I never got along with my father. 
Something inside me told me the soul. This is a woman who really squashed the soul, right? Her name is Bridget Engelkin. You can look up her name too. What does she do? The first thing she does, she moves to Israel, lives on a kibbutz, learns Hebrew. Today, what does Bridget Engelkin do? She's an architect that renovates synagogues all around the world. So you see, you can try and squash the soul, but it's never, never extinguished. It's always there. The question is, are we going to allow it not just to express itself, but to really channel the body, to be in charge? That's the big question. Now, how do we know what that means? What the soul being in charge means? What does it mean that the soul now needs to find expression, that we have to allow it to be? And for that, and I've spoken about this before, I know some of you may have heard me uh, speak about this, for that I think we have what's called a pop map, and not the map that pops, but the pop maps, the pop stands for P-O-P-P, personality, opportunities, places, and people. The best way to know how to express or to, to, to create a map for the soul to express itself is to look at those four words. Personality, opportunities, people, and places. I think that God gives us those four things in order to help us express our soul and actualize its mission in the world. What do I mean by those four things? Well, the first, let's, let's just start with this general introduction by Rabbi Yudha Leib, Alter, the Sfat Emet, who was a, a Gerer Rebbe, the Gerer Hasidim, are still a very you know, large sect of Hasidim in, in, in the world today. I think there's about 100,000 Gerer Hasidim in the world today. You can uh, identify them because they tuck their, sock, their socks in, their pants in their socks. See those? But it's not the white socks. The black socks. The white socks is a different Hasidic group. <laughs> yeah, they tuck their pants in black socks. Uh, that's the Gera Hasidim. <laughs> but this is what one of their rabbis, who was also a very holy man, uh, says. The Mishnah teaches. Does anyone want to read this reference? Anyone? Right. So everyone, speaking about the soul, yes, at its essence, it's the same. We all have the same soul. But our mission is different. I think just, just as God created different uh, images of people, no, I, no person is, this, is identical to another. Even identical twins are not exactly the same. So too, our mission in this world is very different. I think the way we are physically is a reflection of the way we are spiritually. The way we are, the way our mission is spiritually is different. I can achieve in this world what only I can achieve. You can achieve in this world what only you can achieve. Therefore, God created you. Otherwise, he would have used someone else that's like you. But there is no one like you, so he created you. That's why that same Lubavitcher Rebbe that we mentioned says that birth means that you matter. Birth is God's way of saying that you matter. Because he, you matter because you're you. And no one can be you. And no one can therefore do what you can do. Now, how do we know what our unique mission is? So that map of pop helps us. The first one is personality. I think everyone needs to look at who they are. Everyone is created differently. 
uh, both genetically and you name it, spiritually, psychologically, mentally. Uh, the, our moods are different. I, I have eight children. Thank God we're blessed with eight children. And uh, if you have numerous children, you know that no child is alike the other. They come from the same source. At least I think they come from the same source. <laughs> but, no, God forbid, my wife is the most pious person you'll ever meet. <laughs> That's right, they all look the same, but none of them is the same. It amazes me, but none is, it probably amazes you too. None of them is the same, we're all different. The personality that God gives us is different. Some are more uh, inclined to, to artistic uh, talents, and some are more athletic, and some are more uh, who knows what. So our personality is different, and therefore the first thing that one per a person has to ask is, who am I in that sense? What personality do I have? What are my gifts? What are my skills? What are my talents? That's why the Midrash says, I mean, based on this verse from Proverbs, honor the Lord with your possessions. What does it mean, your possessions? That means which, what, with whatever he has graced you, as the Midrash says. Um, you know what? Let's read this Midrash. It's the second reference from the bottom. Does anyone want to read this? Very good. So you have to honor the Lord. You have to serve the Lord. Make this world a better place. Become an agent of the Lord in this world by that which he has graced you. Everyone knows what that is. Everyone should know what that is. Um, unfortunately, you know, uh, I find this with the younger generation. I consider myself old now that I have gray hair too. So I find this with the younger generation, but it, it's a plague. We rush to uh, professions that we really don't want. Why? Because of social pressure, because of the pursuit for making a good salary, making money, or machen leben, as they say in Yiddish, right, uh, Alan? <laughs> but the pursuit for all sorts of things, and it kills us, because we're not using our personality to serve God in this world. It crushes our personality. And therefore, I think that's the number one thing on this map, is we have to ask who we are. The second is the opportunities. And this, I... Um, I learned from Esther. Purim is coming up. We just mentioned on Saturday night and, and uh, Sunday. And I know there are many lessons from the story of Purim. But my favorite verse in the story of Purim, and dare I say my favorite verse in the entire Bible, is the verse where Mordechai comes to Queen Esther and says to her, you better go speak to the king and convince him to annul this decree that Haman issued against the Jewish people. Esther refuses. So what does Mordechai say? This is my favorite verse. My favorite verse. Mordechai says, you refuse? If you refuse, relief and redemption will come from a different place for the Jewish people. It will come. And you and your house will perish. And who knows, the verse continues, if this is the reason why God placed you here in the first place. This, is, this might be the reason why you became a queen. I think this should be the life question of every human being. I'm at the gas station right now. Why? To fill up gas. That's what I think. But who knows why God placed me in this kingdom to be the queen of the gas station? 
Maybe it's to smile at someone, some homeless. Maybe it's to give a little penny to someone and help him. There's a reason for every moment, for every opportunity. Absolutely, I suppose so, yes. Again, they stole it from here. You see, everything happens for a reason. You're right. But that's, that's the question of life. What is the opportunity that God is presenting in front of me? Now, we give ourselves many excuses. I'm tired. I'm not in the mood. Leave me alone. I need my peace and quiet. I've had a tough day. I have bills to pay. These are all good excuses. And guess what? God will provide uh, relief for that homeless that you're ignoring, if that's the case. Again, relief for your children that you're ignoring and you can't help uh, do homework. Relief for whatever it may be. But you won't have the privilege of being the channel of God's blessing to those people. That is exactly the message of Mordechai to Esther. It's my favorite part of the Megillah. And uh, no, it's not that God is missing and that shows that God works behind the scenes and so on, what, you know, the classics. But that is the most important part. So the second part of this map is, oh, opportunities. One should ask at every given moment, what is the opportunity that God has given me? I mentioned this this morning, Julie, so you'll excuse me. But uh, I think that uh, in science you find such a phenomena. In science, there's such a thing called multiple discoveries. It's amazing. But when God decides to bring blessing to this world, he brings it. That's why the tech, you ask yourself, the tech revolution happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago, out of the blue. Where was it 40 years ago? It didn't exist. 50. God decided to bring this blessing. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were the right people at the right time who did the right thing, who jumped on the opportunity, and they carried God's blessing to the world. If Bill Gates did not exist... There would have been a different Bill Gates. If Theodor Herzl didn't exist, there would have been a different uh, Theodor Herzl. That's, that's the belief. The redemption will come. It amazes me. Think about the class. I love classical music. How come we don't have Mozart's and Beethoven's today? And uh, with all due respect to all, uh, you know, to all the others. I'm not going to name names. But God decided to give that blessing in that generation Mozart, Beethoven, Schumann, and Schubert, and Brahms, and all the rest decided to jump on that. Mendelssohn, thank you. Fine. Let's not forget. Felix Mendelssohn, right? Yeah, okay. It's not the other one. Yeah. Okay, that's right. So, so we are given opportunities. We have to jump on them. Otherwise, again, it won't come through us. We won't be that uh, carrier of the blessing, and we won't have fulfilled our soul's purpose in this world. That's number two. And number three and number four is the places and the people that we meet, and it's, of course, deeply connected to the opportunities, are also there for a purpose. People come into our worlds not as sources of uh, nuisance, but rather uh, because they are part of our mission, part of our soul's mission. Some people stay in our lives forever. Some people come and go. But they come and go for a reason. We have to ask ourselves, why is this Schmendrick in my uh, life right now? And it doesn't matter whether he's a shamanic, but he's in my life. There's, there's, a, there's a mission to fulfill. And same with places. You think you're going to Hawaii for vacation? No. You're going to Hawaii to fulfill a mission. Maybe there's something that only you can do there. That's part of your soul's mission. And that every moment we have to ask what it is that our soul needs to fulfill. That's why the most important prayer in Judaism is... The Shema. The Shema means to listen. Because the question of Judaism 
is based, is what does, is the question of what does life want from me? We have to listen to that. Not what I want from life. What life wants from me, what God wants from me at this moment. And through that, we can also discover what the purpose of the soul is and ensure that through becoming in tune with the pop map, we can allow the soul to really control and channel the body. I will um, uh, remind you of my favorite movie, and it's actually one of the top ten movies of all times. No, it's not Casablanca, and it's not those. It's Shawshank Redemption. Fabulous, right? <laughs> okay. So in Shawshank Redemption, the most beautiful scene, or one of the most beautiful scenes, is when Andy the banker, do you remember that, breaks into the warden's office, and he locks himself in, and he goes to the uh, uh, microphones, to the sound system, puts on a beautiful concerto of Mozart, and all the speakers all of a sudden are singing this song, and the inmates in the backyard freeze in their place. Do you remember that? And they're glued to the speakers, and they can't believe the sound of their ears. And then the narrator read, Morgan Freeman, says, for a brief moment, we all felt free. For a brief moment, we all felt free. And I think that scene can symbolize the journey of the soul, or maybe even the yearning of the soul. We're all encaged in some place, in some situation, in some circumstance, by someone, something. But we have to enable our soul to turn its music on and say, ah, oh, we come from a different place. We're not part of this world. We're divine. We're infinite. Our vocation is limitless. Let's listen to the pop. Let its music envelop us and let us all feel free. I'll conclude with a story and a recommendation. Um, practical recommendation and a more uh, uh, enjoyable recommendation. Practical recommendation, I'm a big fan, and I see the effect that this has on my children, a big fan of one particular mitzvah in Judaism, and that is saying blessings over your food. Why? Not so much because you have to say the blessings, but first because it enables the soul to be in control of the body. The body wants to eat. The body needs to eat at least three times a day. It's the activity to do with our body the most often. But when we say a blessing, it reminds us, oh gosh, there's something more than just eating. There's a soulful activity that needs to happen here. The eating is not just to satisfy the body, but it's actually to give me the energy for the soul to continue its work in this world. So we say a blessing. And it also teaches self-control. I see it with my children. Oh, I have to bless. I'm not going to indulge myself. I'm not going to eat like who knows what. So that's a practical recommendation to enable the soul to be in control in the body. A more enjoyable recommendation, uh, a documentary just came out. I'm dying to go and see it, but I read a lot about it. It's a documentary about a person named Senad Segedi. Have you heard of it? Senad Segedi was uh, a Hunga Hungarian neo-Nazi who discovered in 2012 that he was Jewish. His grandmother was a survivor of the Holocaust. In 1945, she ran to Hungary and she decided to obliterate anything Jewish that she had left. It was too painful of an experience for her. 
she uh, had children. One of them was the Senate. Before she died in 2012, April of 2012, she called her son, who was a neo-Nazi, and says, I have news to tell you, but you're Jewish. He didn't know what to do with himself. First thing he did was go to the local rabbi, and he said, Rabbi, I'm Jewish. I need to learn about my Judaism. The rabbi, knowing who this man was, this neo-Nazi, he was in the news, he was the head of a political party, thought this was a very bad joke. But he studied more, he learned more about his quest, and he embraced him. This man changed his life 180 degrees. Today he's Jewish, he prays three times a day, he wears tefillin, he, and there's a whole documentary that just came out about him that I'm dying to go watch, you should go see it. Why should you go see it? Because it will be maybe more effective than this humble class tonight, because it will show us that the soul yearns. The soul wants to find expression in this world. The soul wants to be. Let us ensure that our body becomes the channel for that soul's yearning. Let us ensure that it's our soul can play its sweetest music. And let us ensure that it's our soul is truly set free. Thank you very much. Couple of questions. Yes. So one one of the uh, attributes of pop is opportunity. That's right. How do we recognize opportunity or, or define opportunity? We're all presented with uh, certain situations, and sometimes we recognize them. We have a, a little term, good question. We have a term to share. Right. How do you find your the question is define opportunity. How do you recognize opportunity? First, again, I believe in the mazel tov, right, in the dripping. I think the gut feeling very often tells us this is an opportunity. I should be doing this. Our conscience is, plays its, its music all the time. So that's one way. A second way is that we have to ask ourselves what is needed of me that no one else can do. Maybe there's a homeless right here, like I said before that no one else is relating to him. If I'm placed right next to him, maybe it's because I'm called to action. So, so I have to ask, is this something that, that is designed for me? Is this something that is calling my name, as they say? But usually the gut feeling, will, uh, the muzzle will guide you in that direction. One final question, final? Yes. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Right.
Right, right, no doubt. And I think that the more, you know, um, I'll, answer, I'll answer this way, and there's much more to speak about evil in general, but I'll answer this way. Uh, I think that um, when I was 16 years old, in Israel, it's still a big thing to smoke. Smoke cigarettes, not the other things. Smoke. And our rabbi came to us once, Rabbi Steinsaltz, who's also mentioned here as one of the sources. Uh, may Hashem send him a full and speedy recovery. But Rabbi Steinsaltz came to us and said, look, I'll tell you what's wrong with smoking. Not, uh, I'm not going to be a doctor and tell you how bad it is for your health. But I'll tell you what, uh, from a spiritual perspective what's wrong with it. And that is that when you smoke, like it is with any other addiction, you lose control of yourself. Other things become in control of you. An evil person is a person who allowed other things to become in control of him, his true him or her, many, 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 many times to the point that the soul is not just entrapped, but it's tainted, like you said, or completely stained, contaminated. Uh, if it's evil like murder, like you know, rape, like bad things, then, then that soul can, can, can be squashed forever. It will maybe come out in the next uh, generation or two, but for that person, it's squashed forever. And that person, therefore, becomes defined by his evil. He becomes, therefore, evil. Um, but again, those are the exceptions. We're speaking about most people where we can still find control of the body, no matter the circumstance in, in most cases. All right, thank you. Yes. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybatemadrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.